Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Anybody that talks about paradoxes and the context of time travel doesn't know anything seriously about time travel. That's just the way it is, all right? So, it's a difference in describing time travel accurately or time travel the way you would if you were like a science fiction writer. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. In the past, I've uh, interviewed a a very interesting uh, gentleman out of the University of Connecticut, a a physics professor by the name of um, uh, Ronald Mallet who has been working on a theoretical time machine for many years. And there's some stumbling blocks. He needs funding, and uh, there may or may not be some problems with his theory. Uh, But lo and behold, there is someone else out there who is uh, contending for the crown uh, of the the first time machine. And we're going to speak to him right now. Marshall Barnes is a research and design engineer and a member of the Philosophy of Time Society. He's a conceptual theorist 
with a specialty in theoretical physics and cognition related to creativity and technologically induced modes of perception. That's quite a mouthful. We'll find out what that means. He's a member of the Philosophy of Time Society, as I say, National STEM Foundation, and the Nine Sigma Open Invitation Organization. On June 14th of this year, he was named Edutopia, edutopia.org featured member of the week, and was accepted as a member of the 1,000 Scientists in 1,000 Days program, Scientific American Magazine. That same month, he's currently promoting science, technology, engineering, arts, and math agenda, but he's here to tell us about his race to build the very first working time machine. Marshall Barnes, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well, thank you. All right. So, let's first of all, uh, let's talk, settle this for me, because I've always been confused. I've, I've heard uh, physicists who say that Einstein's theory of relativity does not allow uh, for time travel, uh, and I've heard those who say, well, yes, it does. Now, your theory, your theoretical time machine is actually based on on Einstein's theory of rel- relativity, is it not? No. It's uh, not. It's based on his unfinished unified field theory. Ah, on his, unifi- on unifi- or his unified field theory. Okay. Right. It's his, it's his unfinished one. He never actually uh, solved it, uh, and so we have to consider it you know, unfinished, but it's his unified field theory of electromagnetism and gravity, or what you might call distant parallelism or teleparallelism, um, but it's not general relativity. Most physicists, uh, when it comes to time travel, actually have a very pedestrian and shallow knowledge of the subject, which is why people like Ed Farhi of MIT, which is where that one quote came from about, well, it would take, you know, the, half the energy of the universe and it would probably destroy it, you know, that kind of thing. They're, they're running equations out of general relativity, and general relativity allows for some very unique and interesting things except that they're very difficult to accomplish. And, by the way, for your audience who may not be aware of this, uh, general relativity was first put together back in 1915. So you're talking about physicists who are still talking about a theory that's almost 100 years old, okay? Right, right. So, I mean, it's kind of like, hello, can you come up with something else in the meantime, you know? One would uh, think. Uh, Marshall, let, let me... Um, Ask you also to to uh, to go gentle with us, uh, fair listeners, because uh, you know we're, most of us are. Well, uh, if they're anything like me, they basically uh, barely got through. I think grade ten physics. Um, so let's let's try and keep it. And, and this is actually something that you're very well, good yeah, at. I've seen I'll, you on I'll YouTube, and you're a master you at have. this. If you you are. A, I'm just asking me a question. Yeah, you're. A, but you're. A, I've seen you you on YouTube. You're a master at making complex um, uh, complex ideas. Very uh, simple and crystal clear, which is one of the reasons we have you on the program. Yay. So your theoretical time machine, how does it work? How would it work? Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, unlike Dr. Millette, who I happen to know uh, personally, um, it is not like just a design and I'm saying like, well, theoretically, if we get this built, maybe it'll be a time machine. It is an actual machine that is approaching the first stage requirement to be a time machine. Okay. Uh, what has happened is, it utilizes a specially synthesized electromagnetic signal, or actually an electronic signal, that then when it hits metal becomes an electromagnetic field. And that field has certain special properties. The main one is that it grabs space as it moves through space and contracts it, and thus it causes acceleration. Uh, essentially, it is like the first functioning prototype for warp drive. Now, we've done a number of uh, experiments with this thing, in a linear fashion, whether we put them on vehicles going down the road or we did gravity drops, 
and uh, and it always caused acceleration. But the idea came up with uh, was basically, well, what happens if we have it going around and around? In other words, rotating. So it's moving, but it's moving like in a fixed position. That's when you have some very interesting ideas come up. And essentially, like, for example, Samir Mathura from Ohio State University, who's a physicist in the area of general relativity, said, well, if you do that and it acts the way you think it might act, you might have to start thinking about, you know, coaching horizons developing and things of this nature. What does that mean? Which are normally attributed to, like, black holes. You know, you have a region where, you know, on the other side of it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an area where you can't say, well, this is where all this came from what's on the other side. Uh, it, it kind of breaks causality down. Um, so I don't know what that means, though, Mark. I, I mean, are you suggesting... Uh, in other words, uh, cause and effect okay. stop, stops happening the way you would, think, you would believe, okay? Are you saying that you could create a black hole with this thing? No, 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 no. Um, that's what Samir Mathur was saying that we should start thinking about if an extreme model... Uh, the string version of this idea before we even tried to do it okay. uh, was going to take place. And, and, and at that stage, it was purely theoretical. It was just like, what, what should we expect? And so um, I went out to Pasadena for the Mars Society Conference back in uh, just this past August, and I was out there with some, with some pretty brainy people, and we were all sitting around at the banquet table one night, and I told them about this idea I had about applying this signal to a metal fan so that that signal will then become an electromagnetic field spinning with that fan and then make that fan contract space, and it would start to get these possible interesting effects. So the signal would oscillate uh, in, with, in the same motion as the fan. Right. In other words, the signal would become an electromagnetic field enveloping the fan blades. Right. And because the fan blades are spinning around and around, they would be contracting space as they move through space. So what would happen then is that space would not have uh, the opportunity to expand back because here comes another blade. Right. And then before that get, uh, gets to, um, to be, you know, finished reacting to that, here goes another blade, another blade. Tell me, describe to me what this thing looks like. Oh, right now, it's, it's a simple uh, metal fan. It's not very big, but it has a cable attached to it. It's not attached to the motor. It's attached to actually uh, uh, part of the housing that uh, then basically what happens is when we send the signal to this particular uh, portion of the fan, it's then conducted to the axle, and then it goes to the fan blades. And we've tested it to make sure, you know, in fact, we, I did a conductivity test before I even tried to do anything else with it. And uh, essentially what that was is you hook it up to a uh, stereo, and then you uh, take a speaker with a speaker wire coming off the back of it, mm-hmm. and then you touch it to the... Uh, to the different parts of the fan while the stereo is running. And if you hear music, and you hear music with high fidelity, then you've got a really good, you know, conductive connection there. And that's how we tested it out before uh, I started doing, you know, any real experiments with it. So that it's basically what the setup allows you to do. The, um, what, the, what effects we're getting already are, number one, and this is the most important one, we're getting an acceleration of the fan. Uh, what happens is if you turn the fan on, and you use a strobe light to try to, uh, to make it look like it's slowed down while, by setting this uh, rate on the strobe light. Right, you're putting a, you're putting a load on the, um, on the current, so once you add a load, then the, because of the laws of conservation of energy, the, the blades should, according to the present laws of physics, should slow down. Right? No, 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 no. No? No, no. okay. The slowdown part has to do with like um, the same principles of a timing light when a mechanic works on a car. Okay. You've got the strobe light flashing, you're trying to think, you're trying to, and I'm not a mechanic, but 
I know that there's something with, with like a timing belt or whatever. They're trying to get something to sync up so they know that everything's running right. Okay. All right, so what we're doing with the, with the strobe light is we're flashing the strobe light at the fan. Oh, I and see. Then we okay. Adjust the rate so it looks like the fan's not moving. The fan's still moving. If you put your finger in, it's not going to be good. But if the fan's still moving, but it just looks like it's not moving because of the, because of the flicker rate of the strobe light. Right, right. Okay? So it has nothing to do with the load. Okay, like I understand. That. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It has nothing to do with it. Okay. Because we're not, we're not doing anything to the motor of this fan. Got it. Okay. So what happens then is when you get it look like it's not moving and then you turn on the field, and all of a sudden it breaks out of that frozen position, that means, guess what? The blades it's are faster. faster. Right. Okay. Exactly. So, uh, so that was the one thing we did. The other thing we did was uh, we, we, we were shining a light at it and, uh, in a dark room, and we noticed when it feels activated that it seems like some of the light starts to disappear, and we don't know why, okay? Now, uh, before I can you know, make a guesstimate about that, I have to do a test to see whether or not if it has anything to do with the fact that the fan blades are moving faster, so it might, reflect, it might affect the reflectivity uh, that's being, you know, that's going on with the light hitting the fan blades. But we can definitely see that there is a decrease in the light that's reflecting off of the blades. So, so Marshall, if you were to place something inside this field that's been created by the oscillating fan blades in mm-hmm. conjunction with this, this, uh, this signal, what do you suspect would happen to that object? Well, okay, right now, not a whole lot, uh, aside from the fact that we've got a high-velocity fan going and it's blowing all kinds of air, okay? So, but the, uh, the thing about it is that, uh, eventually what we want to do is raise the power, because we're only, we're working with maybe 50 watts at the most, okay? Now we can get our hands on an amplifier, it's an expensive one, but we can, you know, it's available. We can get our hands on an amplifier that's 14,000 watts per channel. Now, along with the fact that we have, oh yeah, the other thing that's interesting is that, uh, when you look at this fan when the field's turned on, you don't really see anything that radical with your naked eye. But if you turn up the monitor, a video monitor, after you've shot footage of it, you get a, co- a, you get a ring of color. It's like green. And that's what's just normal. That just, it just comes off, that, comes off that way. But then when the field's activated, all of a sudden you see this stream of yellow coming into it. And we're like, what is that? <laughs> you know, we're still trying to figure out what that is. But that's something else that's indicating that there's something really different going on here. But again, we're only dealing with 50 watts output. So if you can imagine increasing the power by like 300 times, I mean, you can just, you can just kind of think, well, you know, we might be at that point, maybe even before that point, be approaching what you might call science fiction level effects. Okay, but explain to me why you believe that you are actually creating a time machine and not just blowing air around at incredibly high rates. Well, because what we're seeing, had, the effects that we're seeing have nothing to do with the air. Okay. That's why. Um, I mean, air, I mean, for example, the acceleration of the fan has nothing to do with blowing air. It's blowing air uh, anyway. Right. So, uh, and also, the thing about it is if we, just like Ron Mallet with his uh, rotating ring laser, he thinks that if by having this laser go around, it's going to start to twist space and time, and then he'll start to get close, kind of like curves, and he'll have a time machine. Right. Well, we know that space is being affected by this field. That's what's causing the acceleration of the fan. Okay. So if we crank it up with enough power, then we will start to twist space and time, and then we will eventually get close, time-like curves. I mean, it's just a matter of you know doing the math on it. The key is that this field does something that is akin to what Einstein was talking about with his uh, unified field theory of electromagnetism and gravity. 
that we have an electromagnetic field that is creating a gravitic effect. In other words, it's exhibiting the kind of properties you expect if electromagnetism and gravity were coupled together in some fashion. And there's other physicists who've been looking at this idea, but the big difference is that they're trying to make the electromagnetic field take on these properties after the field has been created, whereas my approach was synthesizing something from the, from the very beginning so that when the field you know, is, is created, it's already doing what you want it to do. When you say you've synthesized this field, what, is, what are the properties of this, this uh, electrical signal that you're sending to the fan? Okay, what's going on is that it's a special, like I said, a specially synthesized signal, and, and it's, it's created in a way that, you know, because my background's in music, okay, and video and things like that. And so, you know, I remember when synthesizers were all these buttons and patch cords and things like that, so I understand synthesis. Most physicists don't, okay? So... The, the situation is such that, and this is not a proprietary area for obvious reasons, but uh, the basic idea was that I was interested in what interesting things uh, special electromagnetic fields could do. One of my first experiments was uh, I created a rotating electromagnetic field that was basically had a TV set, not so much in the middle of it, but kind of in, in the middle of the loop, not in the center, but like part of the, part of the loop that was going on. And basically what it exceeded in doing was completely breaking down all the filtering mechanisms so that I was able to basically capture cell phone calls and all kinds of communications that shouldn't have been coming through the TV set. And at the same time this is happening, on the screen you see nothing but white. And it's, it's white that's slowly undulating, like somebody, like you're looking down the surface of a glass of milk and somebody just kind of gently t- knocks it a little bit, just make it ripple. Right. And that's what was on the screen. Hmm. And then at one point, uh, at another time I was doing one of these experiments, um, one of the things I was interested in was uh, signals traveling through space. As you well know, being in radio, uh, all these radio signals and TV signals from the years are just flying out in outer space. So I was, I was interested in finding out whether or not it might be possible to capture one of these things from the past. And one day, lo and behold, I got this old movie on the TV while I was running one of these experiments. I got all excited and everything at first, but then it went to commercial, and it was like, you know, it was a modern-day commercial. Ah, okay. So what it I wasn't had done was I had picked up a, a, a TV station from a long distance away that I really had, it shouldn't have been able to pick up at all. So that was, uh, it wasn't what I was really looking for, but it was very interesting nonetheless. Now, this, this machine that you're working on, this uh, time machine that you're working on, right. um, What's the, the 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 game plan here? Do you do you, do you think that within your lifetime you could send information forwards in time, or an actual person forwards in time? Okay, we're not going forward. This is this is because we're we're going to be creating closed time like curves. We read, this is about the past. It's not about sending anything to the future at all. Your your you you sincerely believe it is possible to travel backwards in time? Okay, uh, several things. One, yes. Uh, two, there's more than one way of trying to do it. But I'm just saying, just basically within the context of what we're doing, uh, based on what Mallet was talking about, although using a completely different approach, mm-hmm. we're talking about being able to create closed timeline curves, which would then send something backward to the past. Okay. So that's, that's the model. We're not trying to send anything to the future. It might be, it might be theoretically possible to do that, but that's like, you know, further down the road, and we have to take a slightly different approach. Would you be sending information to the past or people? Okay. Um, the first thing we're going to be doing is we're going to be 
seeing like photons disappear and then electrons. Uh, and then, so you can, so you can call that information if you want. Um, then it'd be a situation where we'll just start slowly scaling everything up. So before you try to send somebody, first of all, you have to know what's on the other, what's going on on the other end, okay? But eventually, let's say in the long view, uh, yeah, there's, in fact, I've already had people say that they would, they would volunteer to go. <laughs> but the, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a process whereby we would slowly scale up, see what happens, see how, how well the whole operation works. And then you start sending live things back, like maybe a roach or something like that, or, you know, a hamster, and then it gets up to a lizard or, you know, you know, the, the normal scientific way you do these kind of things, like when they were putting animals up in outer space before they put, you know, right. man. Right. It's the same kind of approach. Let me ask you a question that may on the surface seem silly, but I sometimes I ask those types of questions. That's fine. Uh, how do we know the past exists? Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, it's, it, yeah, it's, it certainly does make sense. Um, one way of looking at it is the block universe model, okay? And in the block universe model, Everything that's ever happened and is going to happen is already all laid out, okay? So the short, the short version of this whole thing is essentially looking at it as, as everything's the past. If, if, if the block universe model has any kind of validity whatsoever, that means everything's already happened. It's just that we're in the middle of it. It's like, for example, um, if you have a DVD and it's got you know, alternate versions on it and all this kind of stuff, on that DVD, everything's already happened. But when you put it in your player and you watch it, it's not already happened to you yet because you're in the middle watching the DVD. Right. But it's already all there. Okay. So that's one way of looking at the whole thing about the past. And the other thing about it is that, you know, physicists have seen equations that would suggest that you could go backwards in time, and that's where, where, where it comes from. So, you know, but and I want to point out one thing. One of the problems with dealing with concepts about time travel is that the original ideas about time travel came from, like, you know, science fiction story. H.G. Wells. Exactly, right. And so, inherently, you have all kinds of ideas in there that don't make sense if you try to apply it to the real world. Like paradoxes, okay? There are no paradoxes in any real time travel scenarios because it's real easy to see why that wouldn't happen. Uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics is one of them. Okay, let me just explain uh, like a paradox. A typical paradox is the problem with t- traveling to the, the past is, let's say I travel back to 19... 19- uh, 1951, and I prevent my parents uh, inadvertently from from getting married and thus having children, and thus I wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. So that's a paradox. Or I accidentally run over my great great grandfather with an ox cart in you know 1805, so that my grandparents would my grandfather wouldn't be born, my father wouldn't be born, and so on. These are these are called paradoxes. Right. You're saying that's not a problem with traveling backwards in time. Right. Exactly. How, and explain you know why? why. Because when you go back in time, now well, first let me start out from a scientific foundation. The Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics says that you only get one outcome per measurement. Okay. So to apply that to the real world, you know, the one measurement that's already happened is like all this stuff with your, you know, ancestors and you are here, okay? So that's, that's a given. If you go back in time, and this is where it becomes very important, the mere act of traveling back to the past is a different outcome because it didn't happen the first time around. So that automatically says, okay, something's different here, all right? Then anything else that you do while you're back there, it's also obviously a different outcome. So you have to be in a parallel universe. You, you get, it's not the same timeline. So technically, right, so, are you traveling backwards in time, or are you simply jumping to another dimension? In other words, okay, 
anybody that talks about paradoxes within the context of time travel doesn't know anything seriously about time travel. That's just the way it is. Okay. All right? So, it's a difference in describing time travel accurately or time travel the way you would if you were like a science fiction writer. Got all it. Right? So, if you go back in time, you're ending up in a parallel universe. All right? You're not going to be on the same timeline as you were because everything they already happened, and we have records of it. For example, you can't go back in time and save the same Titanic that we know about because it's at the bottom of the ocean floor, okay? We've but you could save up. a Titanic in an alternate universe. Exactly. Uh, all right, hold on, Marshall. I've got uh, about a billion more questions for you. Okay. I don't know if we'll get to all of them. Probably not. But the one we need to find out is, is it possible to travel back further in time than when the time machine was created? Don't answer now. We'll get to that when we come back. Marshall Barnes, the race to build the first time machine. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Welcome back. Marshall Barnes is uh, with us, and we are talking about uh, time travel. And he's building a time machine. And get this, he's not talking about the traveling into the future. I mean, we've already demonstrated that, that is, that's possible, um, you know, nanoseconds into the future. He's talking about time travel into the past. A long thought by many 
physicists to be impossible. But he, but Marshall is saying, no, 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 no. They're they're basing that on, you know, a th- Einstein's theory that's a hundred years old. Uh, now, Marshall, here's to me the one of the crucial questions: uh-huh. Is it possible? To, to travel back further in time than when the time device is turned on? Okay, now that's, a, that's a very good question, and I want to deal with that because, first of all, what you have to understand is that when physicists say, you know, basically what you just said, if you can't travel back in the past before the time machine is turned on, they are talking about closed timelike curves, all right? And what that is, closed timelike curves is like physicists code language for time machine. Because basically, this is, where, this is what happens in the scientific community. It's a lot like high school, okay? Uh, everybody wants to be popular. Everybody wants to be accepted. And there's certain things that you can't do because it was in that community. It's just not deemed to be cool. At least it wasn't, okay? And time travel is one of those things. It's like, you know, as soon as you start talking about, oh, I'm thinking about doing something about time travel, all your peers are like, Oh, uh, you know, you feeling okay? Uh, yeah, they you back know, out of the room slowly. Patient. Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> right, exactly. That's, and that's the way they, they would treat them. Okay, now, and, and to me, because I'm an engineer, I'm not, I don't call myself a scientist. I'm a research and development engineer, by the way, not design development. And that's, that's important because the development part of it means you take what you're researching and you figure out a way to make money with it, okay? So I'm not bound by the same uh, confines as physicists who work at a university and have to worry about, like, you know, getting tenure or something like that or satisfying the administration above them and trying to get grants and all that kind of stuff. But basically, Kip Thorne back in 1988 said that even though a lot of physicists like science fiction subjects, they are afraid to, or at least they were at that time, to veer too close to the area of science fiction because then the peer pressure starts. And the peer pressure in the science community makes the kind of stuff that, you know, these jaded high school cheerleaders do to each other look like, you know, a happy birthday party. So the bottom line is that, uh, and then that has changed, though, over the years. It's gotten better. But uh, for a while, it was really, really bad. And so what that basically meant is that the same impetus to look for really cool, cutting-edge kind of things uh, in the scientific community uh, didn't exist the way it did back at the beginning of the 20th century. All right? Right. So, I mean, how smart is that? <laughs> I mean, it's like, like I said, these physicists like Ed Farhi, they're like talking about general relativity. I mean, general relativity came out in 1915. Right, It's right. almost 100 years old. Exactly. It's like, you know, what, hasn't anybody been looking at anything else? Apparently not. No. So, but back to exactly. the... Exactly. They haven't. But that's, s- the, that's, that's the truth. Okay. That, excuse me, there's something they don't know. So they don't know whether it's, it's possible. They just haven't looked. And so, to me, it's kind of like, you know, what's that about? So... Basically, I was looking, in fact, a lot of my research goes back to what people are looking at in the early 20th century. After all, that's where Einstein's unfinished unified field theory is derived from. It was like he was working on it in the early 20s uh, initially, and uh, he was trying to unify electromagnetism and gravity. And a lot of people in the scientific community have completely forgotten about that. Well, that's what a lot of Tesla's work was based on, right? Was Einstein's unfinished? No, 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 no. no we, we can't get that mixed up. Tesla's okay. stuff. In fact, Tesla thought Einstein was wrong about a lot of things. I'm not saying Einstein was wrong. I'm saying Tesla disagreed with him. Okay. But Tesla was really big into electricity. Okay? Right. And um, I'm not sure. I mean, you'll hear all kinds of, you know, fantastic things about Tesla. Uh, like, you know, he had an anti-gravity machine and all, all kinds of unfounded stuff. But the, uh, the thing about it was he was really big in electricity. He wanted to do, like, free energy 
He wanted to transmit electricity through the air and, and all right, these kind of right. deals. And unfortunately, he wasn't pragmatic enough to uh, tell J.P. Morgan, okay, we'll do this, and you can put a meter on it, but just because it's, so, it's going to be free to you, just don't make it very expensive. Cause that would that would really help us out a lot. But he was too much of an idealist, and so you know, you know, you know the rest of the story. Right. Okay. I don't want. To, yeah. I, right, I sorry. Exactly. I, I, so, I got you di- to digress here. But let's right. back to my question as to whether it's possible. Let's say if you turn on the time machine today, mm-hmm. could you travel back further in time than October the fourteenth, two thousand and twelve? Could you travel okay. back to fifteen eighty one? Okay. Great. That's a good point. Um, no. If we just did follow this, the the path that we're working on right now, okay, we wouldn't. It would not happen that way. All right. However, there is a separate stage that could be applied that is, at this point, strictly theoretical, but there's a basis for it that could possibly allow us to do that. Because, see, while I was talking about the closed sunlight curve things like code for time machine, closed sunlight curves are something that do appear in general relativity. And so, and what they do is they take you back to a particular point in the past where that curve began in the first place. All right. Right. And there's actually even problems with the descriptions of these closed time curves, because some descriptions say that when you go into one, you come right back around and repeat the same thing over and over and over again. But if that happens, then really, like Stephen Hawking's idea of chronology protection conjecture comes into play. Okay, you, you're going to lose the room with that. All right, sorry. <laughs> let me, let me, that's all right. Can point. you go back before the time yeah. machine is created? And well, you're saying that there is a possibility. Yeah, there, there's a possibility. It's just not based on what... Most physicists are talking about when they talk about time machines, they're usually talking about closed time like curves. And in that case, uh, no, you couldn't. So, you know, we're talking about a different thing altogether. But in your, but in your world, in your vision, it's, there is a, there's an, there's a, the possibility. There is a, there, there is a path to go down to test whether or not it might be possible. Okay. So that's, yeah. Now, if you're, if you're sent to the past, can you get back? I mean, how, I mean, how, how sure. are you able to? I'll, I'll answer the question. Yeah. yeah. You, if, if, for example, if you, let's say you open up some kind of a wormhole to the past, okay? As long as the wormhole stays open, yeah, you can get back. Now, let's say the wormhole collapses, but because of the technology we're using, and you're not, didn't, you weren't silly enough to go back to some point in the past where, you know, you didn't have, you know, comparable technology, all right, then, you know, if that happened, then you could build a machine again and come back if you knew how to do it, okay? For example, if I, if I went back and then something happened and the machine uh, got destroyed on this end, and I was, as long as I was like, you know, in the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I could build it again and come back. So, you know, that, in that case, it would work. If you have a vehicle and, uh, and, and you somehow are able to go back, to, back in time, yeah, you can get back because you have the vehicle. The only problem with, with, with uh, coming back is whether or not you have the means to do so, build another machine where you are in order to do so. People wanting to go back to ancient Egypt and ancient Rome and all this other kind of silliness, I mean, that would be very difficult. Plus the fact no one spoke English back then, so I don't know why people want to do that kind of stuff. You know, I'd rather go back to like some other part in the you know in the latter part of the 20th century where I know everything that's going to happen and I know where to find the best restaurants and all that kind of stuff and have a lot of fun. <laughs> I like you know, this is uh, this is refreshing actually to hear uh, someone speak about you know time travel in these terms. Uh, yeah, let's go back to when you know uh, when a Big Mac was 50 cents for crying yeah. out loud. Never mind you know trying to, you know to see the Gettysburg Address. Or <laughs> no, let's go to Woodstock. Let's go to you know right on. Yes, cool stuff. You uh, know. Um, first of all, uh, what, what are the obstacles for you to complete this? Is it funding? Is it what, what's 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 the main obstacle you're well, facing? We have, right now? Again, like I said, I am a research and development engineer, so this means 
I have a, a business uh, side to all this. So uh, we have a business plan. We're in the process of working it. And so funding's not the same problem as it was as it is with Dr. Mallet, uh, who needs like three hundred thousand dollars. Last time I talked with him, in order to even get to the first stage, so he can try to see if his idea even works. I mean, with three, I I couldn't spend three hundred thousand dollars on this project, at least to get to the point where I can say, hey, this thing works. All right. You don't need that kind of money. Uh, one of the reasons why is because we already have the STTS technology, which enables us to start to do interesting things to begin with. So now it's just a matter of scaling the thing up. I mean, the amplifier that I referenced was 14,000 watts. That's like a $6,000 amplifier, okay? So that's kind of expensive. But, I mean, I don't need anywhere near the money that Mallet needs. I what mean, do you need, close. Marshall? What do you need? What do you Basically, need? Basically, all we need is time to, to, to conduct the research and, and, and start, you know, scaling things up. Right. So, in other words, I think we're going to have a conclusion, whether it's possible or not. We're going to know in less than 30 months. You in know? Less Probably than a lot, lot, lot less than 30 months. And how, and, and assuming that goes well, how soon uh, before um, you could send someone backwards in time? Well, okay, let's say that everything goes as we think it should go. Realistically, next year, we should know whether or not we can, you know, it will really work. And then, then that, that's just in terms of getting close on that curves going and maybe even opening up some kind of a hole in space and time. Then comes, like, all the other interim stages you have to go through to figure out, okay, what are you going to do now? What, what are the limitations? It, there's a lot of research that goes into that. So, I, you know, it would be like maybe another year or two, something like that, because we don't know. We're dealing with un, a lot of unknown things here. I don't know. For example, radiation problems. We already know that this, the fan the way it is right now is creating ozone, but there's no high voltage involved. So we think there might be some kind of Z-manzing effect that this warping space, the thing that's, that's being generated, is creating. So we have, to, we have to have all kinds of issues we have to deal with along the way. It's not like it's a matter of like, oh, let's get that amplifier and hook it up and crank it up all the way to 11, you know. This is, you know, after all, you know, very, uh, um, you know, it's a scientific process. And we have to be careful because there are certain risks. Right. You know, you don't want to ramp it up to 11, as you said. Yeah. Uh, yes. Let's send Christopher Guest back in time. Let's, <laughs> all right. For those fans of uh, <laughs> Spinal Tap. Uh, uh, now, listen, uh, uh, where can people uh, find out more about what you're doing? Can they see YouTube video? Can they see where can they what learn they more about the best what you're thing doing? What you do is to go to this website that's been created. It's called the Great Time Machine Race dot Weebly. That's W E E B L Y dot com. TheGreatTimeMachineRace.Weebly.com. All the information about what's starting to happen is going to be on there, both for Mallet as well as myself and my project, which, which is called the, the Fair Drahunk Fan. Now, so I'm guessing this is on a... there. You'll see pictures. We're going to eventually start putting video on there. There's, there's all kinds of stuff that's going to be there. And again, you're saying that it's, it's, it's possible that if everything goes right over the next 30 months, you could start sending people back in time. Within... I, I caution with the people thing only because there's certain things we don't know about. But we can certainly, I mean, we're going to be sending, like, you know, photons and things like that back. And I, I thoroughly expect that. Information, maybe even small animals, I don't know. But I'm just saying that that is not in the realm of impossibility. Here's a, uh, Okay, here's yeah. my parting question. Sure. And if, if I mean, uh, no offense, but it seems like if, if you were able to, f- to discover this, someone else must have at some point. And if time travel is possible, why aren't we seeing, why aren't there time travelers amongst us? All right, great. First of all, I, I love that because that's that Stephen Hawking thing, and I'm always uh, a foil with Stephen Hawking. Um, basically, what happens is this. Number one, uh, if time travel exists, and in fact, the original thing was time travel tourists. We're all the time travel tourists. Anyone smart enough to do time travel 
and then tour, and turn it into a, a touring business, you know, it's smart enough to know if you go back in the past, you don't want people to know you're from the future because it's going to cause all kinds of problems. The other thing about it is this, and this comes down to physics, because of parallel universes, there's a near infinite number of paths out there. So the probability that someone from the future is going to come to our particular past is rather nil particularly if they're running a time travel business. All right, okay. that's, we got to leave it at that point. Okay. I, th I think that's a great answer. And Marshall, what a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Uh, you've left us all gobsmacked, as they say, across the pond in the U.K. I hope you'll come back on and talk more. Not a problem. Marshall Barnes. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>